This is a Fuente podcast. Now I want to get back to Genesis 14. Continuing on with Genesis, uh, we get to this next part, which is very strange. So far, we've seen Abraham be someone who's able to wheel and deal, maybe a little bit deceptive. Also obedient to God, he, he leaves whenever God says to leave his home. But then he lies about Sarah being his wife. So we're starting to see a little bit of the complexity of this character. But this is a new, this chapter is a new view on Abraham, and it's him as a warrior. And I will even argue a little bit as a king, okay? I'm going to read this, this uh, introductory comment from Robert Alter. Uh, so he talks about how it says, And it happened in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar. Okay. That little intro to Genesis 14. This is what Alter says about it. The introductory formula, just two words in Hebrew, sorry, signals a drastic stylistic shift to an analytic narrative. Because verse 2 has no explicit subject, E.A. Spicer followed by later scholars, has conjectured that the first two Hebrew words of the text are a somewhat awkward Hebrew translation of an Akkadian idiom used at, a, at the beginning of literary narratives that simply means when. So what he's saying here is that it's, uh, there's a potential that they've, they've been inspired by Akkadian literature in writing this, whoever the author was. This solution is a little strained and would compromise the effect of introducing the audience to a historical count that is conveyed by the formula, and it happened in the days of such and such a king or kings. Scholarship is virtually unanimous in identifying this chapter as the product of a different literary source from the three principal strands out of which Genesis is woven. He's going to talk about this in a minute, but basically the idea for it is because it's so different from what we've seen so far up to uh, Genesis 13, and again, what we're going to see with Abraham in Genesis 15. And back to Alter. The whole episode is, a f is, in fact, a prime instance of the technique of literary collage that is characteristic of biblical narrative. Abram, having been promised national tenure in the land in the immediately preceding episode, is now placed at the center of a different kind of narrative that makes him a figure on the international historical scene, doing battle with monarchs from the far-flung corners of Mesopotamia and treating with the king of Jerusalem, Salem, one of the principal cities of Canaan. The dating of the narrative is in dispute, but there are good arguments for its relative antiquity. At least four of the five invading kings have authentic Akkadian, Elamite, or Hittite names, and the repeated glossing of place names, Bella, that is, Zoar, as an example, suggests an old document that invokes certain names, which usage has re had replaced by the time this text was woven into the larger Abrahamic narrative. So whenever you find an old manuscript, and it says such and such a place, which now is called this and that a place, you can tell that they're working with something that's even older than whatever they're writing at that moment. Now, in this story, a whole bunch of kings meet together and have a big battle. And it's in the Jordanian plain. It's uh, kind of like the around the salt sea. So imagine like salty, like kind of deserty dirt and all these kings fighting each other. Um, they... There's four versus five kings, 
and two of the kings on one of the sides are Sodom and Gomorrah's king. Kings, there are two kings. Um, I'm going to skip ahead to verse 10. And the valley of Sodom was riddled with Budimen pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled there and leapt into them, while the rest fled to the high country. So, so far with pitch, this Budimen, we've seen it used in, I think we saw it used in the Ark, and I think it's going to be used again with the basket, which is also called the Ark in the original Hebrew, that that uh, Moses is put into to flee from Pharaoh. But here these kings jump into this tar pit. And the four kings took all the substance, that's the kings that were fighting Sodom and Gomorrah, took all the substance of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and went off. So they're getting these, the Sodom and Gomorrah kings getting these, getting a battle with all these other kings and they lose. And these other kings loot Sodom and Gomorrah. Continuing. And they took Lot, Abram's nephew, and all his substance and went off, for he was then dwelling in Sodom. And a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he was then encamped at the terebinths of Mamre, the Amorite kinsman of Eshcol and Aner, who were Abram's confederates. There's a couple of weird things happening here. So Abram's called a Hebrew here. Alter says, only here is he given this designation. Although scholars have argued whether Hebrew is an ethnic or social term, or even the name for a warrior class, it is clear here that it is Invoked only in context when Abram and his descendants stand in relation to members of other national groups. So it's used sort of like a, a term of distinction to distinguish this one class of person from another. Here Abram is a Hebrew, and so he's different from these other kings. Also worth noting is that at this time Abram lives, uh, he's encamped at the terebinths of Mamre. So there are these trees there, and if you remember from previous episodes, trees were the place where divinity met humanity. They're like a little echo of the Garden of Eden. And so in the same way, you could say that the temple is kind of like an echo of the entire cosmos being made in seven, six days and then the deity resting on the seventh and it be having three tiers, like the three-tiered cosmos. In the same way, you could say that the ark is kind of like an echo of the cosmos. The way it has three levels inside of it, just like how the ancients believe there's waters below, and then there's the earth, and then there's the waters above the earth. Th those are like little echoes of creation. Here, though, Abram being with these trees is like an echo of that divine garden ideal. Uh, and this brings to mind times whenever there's been a whole bunch of trees mentioned, like whenever Solomon's building the temple or Moses is building the tabernacle, or even like uh, Jesus being in the Garden of Gethsemane is an interesting twist in the story of, of what happens in a garden when divinity is supposed to meet humanity. A lot of times the pattern is going to be set up in the Old Testament, and then Jesus breaks the pattern. So an example of that would be where a spouse meets their lover at a well. You see that with, uh, we're going to see that coming up pretty soon with a whole bunch of the patriarchal narratives. And you also see that with Moses and his wife. You go to, to Jesus and he doesn't meet his wife at a well, but he meets a woman who's been married five times previously and is now looking for living water. Um, 
and then uh, seeing these times where there's like nourishment and we're we're getting closer to the Edenic ideal that's happening over and over, where people are approaching where God is and there's trees there. When Jesus is at a place where there's trees, there ends up being uh, that's when he's forsaken by God. That's when he says, "Not my will, but yours." And then even like with a uh, being tempted in a desert, you have uh, people failing when that happens to them, but then Jesus not giving in to temptation. So he breaks these patterns that are set in the Old Testament. Uh, okay, Terence of Amor, kinsman of Eshcol and Aner, uh, Abram's confederates or, or allies. Amram heard that his kinsman was taken captive, and he marshaled his retainers, natives of his household. I'll pause there. So you remember in the beginning when um, uh, God tells Abraham to go. Go forth from your land and your birthplace and from your father's house. In other words, leave your family behind to the land I will show you, and I'll make, your nation, make you a great nation. But then it says, after he's left his father's house, Lot's still with him. What's interesting is if you get to this story, Abram would have never been sucked into this battle but for the fact that he'd taken Lot with him. Because the only reason he's he's got a, uh, a dog in this fight is because now Lot's been captured by these kings. And so Abram heard that the kinsman had taken, uh, had taken his kinsman captive. He marshaled his retainers, natives of his household, 318 to them. So to go out and save Lot, he gathers up 318 people. What's interesting is the geomatra for Eleazar, which means blessed by God, is 318. And you're going to see later on in this story, um, Abram wants the blessing. So God's promised Abraham a kid, but Abraham doesn't really believe that he's going to have a kid. And so he says, Oh, my master Lord, what can you give me when I am going to end childless? And the steward of my household is Damasek Eleazar. So the steward of his household is this guy named Eleazar. And also the number of men, 318, that he gets to go find a lot, it's Geomatra's 318, is uh, Eleazar. Now, what Geomatra is, it's kind of like this number game that ancient Jews used to play with numbers and letters where they could make them interchangeable. The most famous example of this is 666 pointing to Nero. 666 is exactly the geomatra for the name Nero. And there's even some, there's one other way to make Nero with geomatra and it's 616. And it just so happens we have manuscripts, uh, very, very early manuscripts from the 2nd or 3rd century, and they some say 616 and say, some say 666. So it's almost like these scribes knew that it was supposed to be talking about Nero, but they worked out their geomatras differently on how to get it there. Anyway, uh, so that's uh, Eleazar, uh, 318, geomatra. He gave chase to Dan, and he and his servants with him fanned out against them by night and struck them and pursued them up to Hobah, which is north of Damascus. That's really far north. And he brought back all the substance... And also Lot, his kinsman, and his substance he brought back. And the women and the other people as well. And the king of Sodom went forth to meet him. After he came back from striking down Shedolaomer. Shedolaomer was one of the bad kings that uh, had taken Lot. And the kings that were with him to the valley of Shaveh. That is the valley of the king. 
This is probably the most interesting thing that happens in this chapter, what, it's, what I'm about to go into. Here's what it says. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, Shalom, brought out bread and wine. For he was a priest of El Elyon. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram to El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be El Elyon, who delivered your foes into your hand. And Abram gave him a tithe of everything. That means one-tenth. I'm going to go ahead and finish out the chapter, but that's the, the part that we're going to really dig into. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the folk and the substance take for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I raise my hand in oath to the Lord, the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take not a single thread or sandal strap of all that is yours. Lest you say, I have made Abram rich. Now, that sandal strap language reminds me of when John the Baptist said, I'm not even worthy to touch his sandal strap. Uh, but here, Abram's saying he's not even going to take a sandal strap from this guy. Let's just say, I've made Abram rich. Nothing for me but what the lads have consumed. As for the share of the men who came with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their share. But now, I really want to dig into what the heck is going on with this character, Melchizedek. of Hebrews in the New Testament, it interprets it Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness. Okay, he's the king of righteousness. And righteousness means like integrity and honesty. King of Shalom. So the, the name of this city now is Salem, which is Shalom, which means peace. So this guy, whoever he is, he wasn't in the story before, suddenly he's here. His name is King of Righteousness, King of Peace. Okay. Who does that sound like? I don't know, that's just... Who does that sound like? <laughs> and continuing on. And he brings out bread and wine. For he was a priest of El Elyon. So he brings out bread and wine. Who else brought out bread and wine? I'm thinking the Last Supper. Okay. He was a priest of El Elyon. So this guy is both a priest and a king. Now Jewish thought, you had to be from the Le Levi to be a priest. You had to be from Judah to be a king. But here's this guy, he's a pagan. He's outside of, I mean obviously he's outside of the Jewish people. They don't exist yet. Only one's Abram. And he's a priest and a king. 
and he's a priest to El Elyon. El Elyon was the highest god in the Canaanite pantheon. But this name, El Elyon, is just a title. It means the highest god. It means the highest god, and that is interesting because even if this guy was historically like a, a pagan guy, Abraham kind of takes this, I've sworn to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you. So Abram did a previous swearing that that none of this stuff would belong to him, to uh, his own God. And so Abram is at least interpreting El Elyon to be his own God. And, oh, and I, I want to jump back real quick. The hold your thought, hold the thoughts with the Melchizedek. Back to whenever this guy first approaches Abram to go save Lot, this just popped into my head. I'm wondering how he even knew to go find Abram. Abram's not some giant international character. It it might be where uh, we can assume that Lot asked this. The guy Alter uh, translates it as a fugitive. In the NIV, it just says a man who had escaped came and reported to Abram. And so it's interesting, somehow Lot, or so, somehow this man knew that Abram was out there. Abram had the military power to do something. Uh, this man wanted Lot to be saved, and he knew where to find Abram. And that's just something interesting to think about and try to figure out. Uh, and it says he's living near the great trees of Amri and the uh, Amorite, a brother of Eshkol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. Who are these people? Where did they come from? You know, I, I have no idea. Uh, this is the first time, so far as I can tell, that they appear in the narrative. And maybe I've just missed something, but I just find that it's interesting in this particular narrative, there's... These characters we don't know about, and then there's also this guy who seems to know where Abram is, that Abram can save somebody. And uh, it makes me wish I had whatever manuscript this was pulled out of. It feels like there's there's background data here that's missing. All right, but going back to Melchizedek, though. So we talked about his he's king of righteousness, king of peace. He gives bread and wine. Uh, he's a... Priest of God Most High. That's what El Elyon means. And then he blesses Abram. He says, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. So he believes that this highest God is the creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High who delivered your enemies into your hand. And he believes that this God is sovereign over the battlefield. But this is what's really interesting. Abraham then gave him a tenth of everything. Now, what's interesting about that tenth is that, you know, we tithe, we tithe to our churches. Um, an ancient Israelite would have tithed to the Levites um, as a way to give to God. It's interesting that Abraham tithes to this guy. Now, who is this guy? And he must be somebody in some kind of authority over even Abraham, or else Abraham wouldn't be tithing to him. And if you look in the book of Hebrews, when it's arguing about how Jesus is not only not an interruption of the Hebrew story, but he's a completion of it, and also that he's from a priesthood that's superior to the Levites, he argues that using this story. He says that Le Levi's 
So let's see. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi. He's talking about Melchizedek. Yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So he's saying that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And he says that uh, Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. What is he quoting? The, the author, or she, potentially. What is this author of Hebrews quoting when they, when they say this? A priest in the order of Melchizedek. It's a messianic psalm. It's Psalm 110. The Lord, I'm going to read it to you. The Lord says to my Lord, and Jesus quotes this psalm, by the way. So we know that Jesus was reading it and thinking about it. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like... Do from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge nations heaping up the dead. And crushing the rulers of the whole earth, he will drink from a brook along the way. And so he will lift his head high. This is clearly messianic, talking about bringing judgment on the nations. And it here mixes this Melchizedek character with this promised Messiah. Why is that important? Well, you have a priest who's bigger than the Levitical priesthood, and he is bringing bread and wine. He exists before the Levitical priesthood even existed. And he blesses Abraham and he takes the tithe from Abraham. I was looking through my copy of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, you can get it with Penguin, Penguin Classics. And it's all the non-scriptural verses. And then you can also, there's another uh, one that's a translation of all the scriptural ones. And there's this one particular scroll that's really interesting from Cave 11. And it's called the Heavenly Prince Melchizedek. I'm going to read to you a little bit from this scroll and it'll help you get into the author of Hebrews's brain and also into the second temple Jewish brain and so we could try to figure out what were they making of Melchizedek and concerning that which he said in this year of Jubilee each of you shall return to his property and likewise this is the manner of release every creditor shall release that which he has lent to his neighbor he shall not exact it of his neighbor and his brother for God's release has been proclaimed and it will be proclaimed at the end of days concerning the captives, as he said, to proclaim, proclaim liberty to the captives. This is interesting. He's talking about, well, I'm going to keep going. Its interpretation is that he will assign them to the sons of heaven and to the inheritance of Melchizedek. For he will cast their lot amid the portion of Melchizedek, who will return them there and will proclaim to them liberty, forgiving them of their wrongdoings and their iniquities. So this, this author of this Dead Sea Scroll is saying that if you look at this particular uh, jubilee, so this jubilee was this mega Sabbath, okay? You'd have the Sabbath every week, and then uh, I think every like uh, 
49 years, you had something called a jubilee, where prisoners were released. Um, I'm reading here from Leviticus 25. Count off seven Sabbath years. So that's a group of seven years together. Seven times seven years. So that the seven seven years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the tenth day of the seventh month of the Day of Atonement. Sound the trumpet throughout your land, consecrate the fiftieth year, and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what, it, what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines. For it is a jubilee and is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. It's like this mega rest. So all these Sabbaths are always pointing forward to this time when ultimately creation will be recreated. This is even hinted at in the original creation story where God rests on the seventh day. And we're always trying to get back to that seventh day rest. And so the, the Sabbath is put in as like a, a spatial, not a spatial, a temporal way to remember this, this combination of divinity and humanity. Just like the temple is a spatial reminder, and literally it was believed to be a connection of uh, divinity and humanity. So the Sabbath is like a, a little appetizer for what the new creation and new kingdom is going to be and the author of this of this scroll the heavenly prince melchizedek is totally firing on all cylinders with this just like daniel was if, you, if you've ever read daniel and he's talking about those uh 490 weeks and all that weird language with numbers and, and weeks he's getting these ideas from the the jubilee and these ancient jews imagined like 10 jubilees together where instead of being the 50th year it's like the 490th year is like supposed to be um when the exile ends from babylon it's like the mega the mega jubilee that'll be the time when creation is is recreated and uh, a lot of people after the babylonian exile they were calculating using this 490 year scheme and thinking that the messiah was going to come around to the first century a.d and so jesus and a whole lot of other people claimed to be the messiah around that time okay continuing with the scroll of melchizedek the heavenly prince melchizedek and this thing will occur in the first week of the Jubilee that follows the nine Jubilees and the Day of Atonement and the end of the tenth Jubilee. So ten Jubilees would be 490 years. When all the sons of light and the men of the lot of Melchizedek will be atoned for. Look, so Melchizedek here in this scroll, he's forgiving sins. He comes on the 490th year of Jubilee. And he proclaims captive, uh, liberty to the captives. That's a uh, reference to Isaiah 61, where it's, uh, the captives are supposed to be set free. Who did Jesus set free that was a captive? Well, if you think of the New Testament, remember there's the guy who's chained at the Gerasenes. He was setting people free from the captivity to the powers of darkness. That's how Jesus is breaking the chains of servitude. But I'm going to continue on with this Melchizedek scroll. The sons of light and the men of the lot of Melchizedek will be atoned for. 
and a statute concerns them to provide them for their rewards. For this is the moment of the year of grace for Melchizedek, and he will by his strength judge the holy ones of God. Melchizedek in this scroll is judging the divine council. Okay. Executing judgment as it is written concerning him in the songs of David, who said Elohim has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods he holds judgment. So we've talked about Psalm 82 before. This is the exact same idea, except this person's plugging Melchizedek into the place of God. Which is so this person's using Melchizedek as a nexus between the Messiah and Yahweh. A lot of times people say, well, the Jews never expected the Messiah to be God. Well, there's hints of it here in the Melchizedek scroll, the way that this particular author is linking Yahweh and, Melch and the Messiah. There's even hints of it in the Bible, too. If you read like Ezekiel 34, it'll be like God saying, I'm going to raise up uh, David for you and he's going to be a good shepherd for you and I'm going to be your king and I will lead you and you know and, uh, Zechariah they will look on me the one they have pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only child you can see like a, a little bit of some language that might hint at it there with the first person and the third person I'm going to continue the Melchizedek scroll as for that which he said, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah, Psalm, whatever that is. Its interpretation concerns Belial and the spirits of his lot who rebelled by turning away from the precepts of God to... Unfortunately, the, um, the manuscript breaks off here. But I can only guess that it's talking about the Genesis 6 revolution of all these sons of God. Uh, skipping ahead, this day, this is the day of peace slash salvation concerning which God spoke through Isaiah the prophet who said, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who proclaims peace, who brings good news. That's where we get the word gospel. Who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns, your Elohim reigns. Um, the good news for the Second Temple Jews wasn't that someday the Messiah is going to come and die for their sins. The good news was that God was coming to reign. That was the good news. And I'm not saying Jesus didn't die for our sins on the cross, but I'm saying when we share the good news, we need to be talking about how Jesus is king. And him dying for our sins is only just a piece of that. The good news is that Jesus is king and he's ushering in the new creation. It's not all about us and, and trying to get to this platonic ideal of heaven one day. All, the God of Genesis 1 was saying creation is good. And he's always trying to make this creation where he can coexist with us. Continuing with Melchizedek scroll. How beautiful... Uh, see, uh, it's interpretation. The mountains are the prophets. And then the scroll breaks off again. Sorry. And the messenger is the anointed one of the spirit concerning whom Daniel said, Until an appointed one, a prince... And then it breaks off again. And he who brings good news, who proclaims salvation, it is concerning him that it is written, and then it breaks off again, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion. Skipping back to that Daniel reference, that it seems to be talking about the Son of Man, which is what um, 
Jesus calls himself. So you can see like the connective tissue between the Son of Man, Melchizedek, the Messiah, and Yahweh. By the judgments of God, as it is written concerning him, who says to Zion, your Elohim reigns. Zion is, it breaks off again. Uh, and your Elohim is Melchizedek, who will save them from the hand of Belial. So looking at this, you have the 10th Jubilee. Melchizedek equals God. He judges the nations. He sets people free. He sets free captives. He judges the divine council. Think again of Jesus with the possessed guy, the Gerasenes. He's, he's in chains. The, he's judging the divine council there and exercising authority over him. The gospel is Melchizedek's coming kingdom, according to this author. It has the forgiveness of sin. It comforts those who mourn, and it involves God reigning here on earth. The author takes the categories for Messiah and Yahweh, and he plugs Melchizedek into both. So, if the Second Temple Jews were familiar with this manuscript, they probably were, that brings a whole lot of foundational knowledge to understanding a book like Hebrews, which is going to use Melchizedek to argue that Jesus was divine. And so I would highly suggest reading more Second Temple Jewish literature like that. Uh, you can get this Penguin Classic. It's called The Complete Dead Sea Scrolls in English, translated with an introduction by Jezza Vermis. Um, and it's been great. I've been reading in it about the, uh, the Book of the Giants was interesting. It's a couple pages. Uh, this other weird stuff about Noah and the Divine Council. You find all of it there, and it makes the uh, Bible stories make so much more sense when you understand what they're talking about. The Ages of Creation from Cave 4, Book of Noah from Cave 1, Cave 4, and Cave 6. There's different fragments of it. Okay. <clears throat> uh, so with that, we have this interesting character. People have argued about who he is. Mike Kaiser has a really, really interesting podcast on who Melchizedek is. I would suggest listening to that. He's way less, uh, oh, it's clearly Jesus than, than I am. He thinks it's just a, a Mesopotamian king. I think, though, where there's smoke, there's fire. And there's just like the bread and the wine. He's the priest and the king. Abraham gives him a tithe. Uh, he's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Like, come on. Like, who is this really? Like, ask yourself in your heart who this is. Who, who makes sense there? <laughs> um, oh, yeah, in uh, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, it talks about how he's without days, Melchizedek. So, uh, that's a whole lot on that. Got us into Christology a little bit, so that's good. Uh, next time, I'll pick up with Genesis 15. Ooh, that's going to be the uh, covenant. That's going to be interesting. See you guys next time.